All right, I want to invite Cornelius up with me for a moment. <clears throat> um, my father-in-law grew up in Nigeria, and in Nigeria, there are some very large snakes, and this would be a python. You can walk now. If he's watching, we don't want to rip this thing because it's like 35 years old. Keep going here. I'll never forget when I was dating my wife and he pulls this out and he's like, I want to show you what I did to a python. And if you mess with my daughter, here's what I'm going to do to you. Now, this is one of the smaller snakes of Africa. And uh, I, some of you would probably love to come up and touch this, right? But here, here's my question for you. Uh, how many of you are a little bit just irked out right now? Like, you're just a little uncomfortable. Like, if I brought this up to you and, like, made you touch it, would be very frustrated with me. Is there anybody in this room who just has this aversion to, like, snakes, right? Um, it's amazing. The rest of you, right, you have allowed the Holy Spirit to eradicate all fear of the serpent. That was a joke for those of you who raised your hand. I'm just trying to make you feel terrible. All right, we're going to just put this on the, on the first step here. Um, my, again, my father-in-law will kill me if I step on this. And uh, so this will just kind of, we'll, we'll leave it up here for a few minutes and you'll kind of get the, the vibe of this. But um, I'll never forget when he unfolded this, uh, I, I, I thought to myself, like, how did, you, how did you kill this thing? And I'm imagining stories where my father-in-law found this python <clears throat> and inside of the python was his little baby brother. And he goes over and he just wrestles this python and, and, and rips open its head and pulls out his brother and saves him. And then lo and behold, I said to him, well, like, Dad, where did, you, where did you get this? And he goes, oh, I bought it at, at a store in Africa <laughs> to remind me of all the pythons that we saw. I was like, that's a little anticlimactic, and I feel like it doesn't really do my sermon justice. Like, I wanted to close it with, and let me tell you how my father rescued somebody from the jaws of this, of this python. Well, well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we meet the first serpent, and I want to read this for you. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 3, and uh, it says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so right off the bat, if, if you are the discerning reader, um, you're able to see that before the fall, before sin entered into the world, um, things were pretty different. In fact, we have talking serpents you have this idea that somehow um, that there is a craftiness, an intelligence, a cunning ability, uh, uh, something in the nature and the character of a non-human um, that has ambition to deceive and to destroy. Like There's something about the pre-fallen world that as you read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you realize that it's obviously pretty different, right? And, and we don't know what that is. I mean, we, we can try to surmise what did this serpent look like before the Lord cursed him, but really we don't know. But here's what we do know. We do know that we go back to this and we see there's a serpent who is more crafty. Now, what I, I want to show you is, is the word in Hebrew for serpent is actually really interesting. It's nahash. I, I'm drawing out the, the end because it's onomatopoeia. It's a word that um, actually sounds like the noise of the object. And so it's this idea that when they heard the serpent and they heard the hissing sound, they gave it a name that reflected the very sound uh, that it makes. And it's interesting because in scripture, the word serpent, it literally means to hiss, to whisper a magic spell, or to foretell. It's a really interesting, deep 
word that when, they, when it's ascribed to the initial serpent, you understand in the pre-fallen condition why this word was given to him. So here's what I want to do with you. I want to actually um, kind of just step back for a moment before we get in more in depth with this serpent. I want to just tell you a brief history of the snake throughout history, uh, and especially in the Old Testament. Now, I don't have um, all the time in the world to go through every single example, but let's just say in almost every single pagan culture around the world over millennia, um, they have found a way to exalt and to worship the serpent or the snake. In fact, you guys know the story of Medusa. Here's just one little example. This was the most tame of the pictures. And uh, if you go back even to ancient Egypt and you look at the pharaoh's um, masks, if you will, there's almost always some version of a serpent or a cobra. In fact, if you go to the next picture, you see the, um, the, the uh, side of his mask in the top that's supposed to represent um, a cobra who is getting ready to attack and powerful and intimidating. Um, that there's something even in Egyptian culture that is so bound up with the serpent. And the serpent, if you will, if you worshiped the serpent, it would provide for you pleasure or protection or it would help you and serve you. And if you gave your loyalty to the serpent, the serpent would give you and your heart what it really, really wants. We could talk about the serpent in ancient culture for a long time, but this is just a snapshot. And in scripture, the first time we ever see a serpent, it is Satan himself. He reveals himself first and foremost as a snake. And what we find here is that um, this, what we see here now, is scary to us. I mean, if this was a real live python, most of you would actually freak out. There's something that when humans encounter large, dangerous, poisonous snakes, there's something inside of us that, that freaks out. But apparently, before the fall, there was something crafty and beautiful and more compelling about this. It would have been way less concerning if you would have seen the, quote, serpent before he was cursed by God. But throughout the Old Testament, this is what I really love, is that God takes this imagery of the snake and he uses it to reveal his power. So do you remember um, an Aaron's staff, right? Moses is freaking out. He's like, what am I gonna tell Pharaoh if I go talk to him? And so God gives him a staff. When you throw the staff to the ground, what does it turn into? A snake. Well, of course, Pharaoh's magicians are um, satanically motivated. They can do the same thing. So they take their staff and what do they do? They throw it down, it becomes a snake, a bunch of them. And then what happens is God shows his power because he takes Aaron's snakes and what do they do? They devour the magician snakes showing that God ultimately has power over these. Um, if, if you go back to the book of Numbers, um, the Lord was really, really, really upset with Israel because they kept complaining, right? Sort of like our kids. Anyone relate to that, right? Um, complaining, it's never good enough. I don't like what you have for me. And so the Lord, I mean, put this in your theological box and figure it out. He sends serpents to go bite the people and then all these Israelites start dying. And you're reading this and you're like, man, kind of feels sort of like a jerk, um, and then people are dying, and then, and then ultimately what happens is uh, God comes to Moses in Numbers 21.9, I'll put this on the screen, and says, so Moses made a bronze serpent, and bronze was a metal that often symbolized judgment, bronze or brass, and he set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, now did he get rid of the serpent? No, but he gave them a way out. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent serpent and live. 
As you follow throughout the Old Testament, though, the people were constantly drawn, the Israelites, to the gods of Egypt, to the snake gods, the, um, the multiplicity. The, it's just a very tragic story. And eventually, by the time you get to 2 Kings, the people took this serpent that was still around and they started worshiping the serpent. Uh, this very thing uh, that was a means of salvation for them that they started to give their worship to him. So 2 Kings 18.4, the king was Hosea. He removed the high places. He broke the pillars. He cut down the Asherah. These are all the foreign gods, all the false worship. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people had made offerings to it. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see that God is repeatedly using snakes and serpents as a means to demonstrate his power over them. So like every time this happens, Satan is reminded, you are not more powerful than God. You you get to the New Testament and this actual imagery of the snake on the pole comes full circle. You know John 3.16, but you go just two verses before it. And uh, here's what it says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So the son of man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you watch this theme all throughout scripture culminating with Jesus Christ having ultimate dominion and authority, all things serpent-like, and over all the effects that the serpent has brought into this world. Uh, Open up with me in your notes to point number one. Um, The notes are either online at vcob.org backslash hub, or you should have gotten them when you came in. And what I want to do is I want to look first at the fallout of the fall. Uh, I want to look at what happens to the serpent, to the man, and to the woman. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And let's look and see first what happens to this serpent. The Lord God, he said to the serpent, because you have done this, just in case you weren't here or you're new to the Bible, what is this? He deceived, he tricked, He duped Eve and then Adam. He caused them to eat the apple. They willingly um, ate it knowing God's word, uh, going against God's word, knowing that the moment they ate it, they would surely die. He tricked them into sinning and therefore brought sin into the entire world. Uh, If you want more on that last week's sermon, we went deeper into that. And he says, because you have done this, cursed, damned, are you above all, above all livestock and above all beasts of the field? And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, when I'm reading the Bible sometimes, I, I love to imagine the what if, so you need to know when I'm surmising versus when I'm teaching, so I hope you can make a clear distinction between the two. Um, but it makes you wonder... A, how big was this serpent? Like in your brain, don't you have like a little garden snake in your mind, like, like around the tree for some reason? Like how big was this serpent? Before he was damned to crawl on the ground, what was he doing before that? Here's a, here's a crazy thought. Do you think he could fly? I don't know. I'm surmising. This is called surmising, okay? That's all this is, all right? But if you think about it, we don't know anything about him other than there is something Glorious, interesting, compelling about this serpent beforehand, and he is ultimately cursed. Go to verse 15. I will put enmity, hostility, violence between you, serpent, 
and the woman. And it doesn't just stop between you and this woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then here, here's the line that many of you are familiar with. And he, Eve's offspring, shall bruise your head. But you, you shall bruise his heel. Um, there's a couple things I want to just draw your attention to here. And the first is the wound to the head. So if you are going to kill a snake, what do you need to do? You, can't, you can try getting it in the body, but it's going to live a long time. If you want to put a death blow to a snake, you do one of two things. You chop off its head or you stab its head. Those are your options. You have to kill the snake at the head. The head is a mortal wound. This is why some of your versions will say, and he will crush you, um, that Jesus or the offspring will crush the head of Satan. But all Satan can do is really just nip at the heel. Satan can be an incredible inconvenience and a frustration, but he has no power to kill you. He can harm you, he can bite you, he can nip at you, he can be as irritating as you can possibly imagine. But if you are of the offspring of Eve, the spiritual offspring through faith in Jesus, he has no ultimate authority or power over you to kill you. But here's what we find, that, that Eve's offspring, here's what, here's what he's gonna do. Eve's offspring is gonna go right after the head and he's gonna give a death blow to the serpent once and for all. Now here's what I also want you to draw attention to. Who received the first gospel presentation, the first promise that the enemy would be defeated? It was not humanity. The first gospel message ever was given to Satan himself. And in this moment, God is declaring war against him. Now, one of the things I love to do here is put yourself in the shoes of Satan. Does he know the future? Say no, please. No. For all Satan knows, the offspring is Cain or Abel. Satan has zero idea how far God has planned the, quote, plan of redemption. He has no category that this offspring is not going to come for 4,000 years plus. Not even an idea. And you watch Satan throughout the Old Testament regularly going after anybody who might be called and chosen of God, trying to kill the offspring before the offspring kills him. You watch this frantic pursuit all the way up until the time of Christ, and he is not content until Jesus Christ is dead. Once God becomes incarnate through Jesus Christ, he realizes immediately after thousands of years of waiting, this is finally the one that God spoke of thousands of years earlier in the garden, and he will not rest until he puts Jesus Christ to death, not realizing that that very act was going to be the means by which he would be ultimately destroyed. Um, now, in, in the past, I want to move on now to the woman, because this curse is going to unfold, and we could spend hours and days here, but um, uh, what I want to do with you is I want, I want to examine specifically how the curse affected the man and the woman in two ways. Um, over the last couple weeks, we have examined this passage from many, many, many levels, and so what I want to do is just kind of zero in and focus here. And what you're going to find is that specifically um, the curse impacts the man and the woman first and foremost in their marriage, first and foremost in their family. So if marriage has been hard for you, this is why. Uh, if marriage and family and raising kids has been a challenge, when you die and go to heaven, blame Eve. It's all her fault, um, 100%. That's a joke, actually. The, the New Testament blames Adam, ironically. And, um, but what I want to do is I want to show you this, is that God, first of all, cursed 
their primary responsibility in creation. And the second thing he does for each of them is he curses their ability to love their spouse well. He curses their primary responsibility, and then he curses their ability to love their spouse well. Here's what he says. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childrearing. I'm told childrearing is painful. Anyone? 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 Have you ever had appendicitis? I guarantee you it's way worse. Um, it was also a joke. If you don't know me, relax. <laughs> don't ever tell my wife I said that, by the way, because I keep trying to convince her, like, you don't know how bad. Oh, hi. How's it going? <laughs> You're usually at 11 o'clock. You're throwing me off, girl. Come on. Childbearing is worse than appendicitis. All right, in pain, in pain, you shall bring forth your children. Biologically, Adam had no capacity to bear children whatsoever to take care of them in the early um, years of the child's life. Biologically, this is a necessary byproduct of femininity. This is how God designed the woman's body to be able to give birth to and to care for. The fact that this is even controversial uh, only is happening because in the last hundred years of, because of abortion and a million other things, even just the invention of formula gives a lot more versatility. But go before that, this was the design that God infused biologically into a woman, and you'll see a different design in the man, and we can talk for days about what that means now, but for what it's worth, that's there. And he says, and then he says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So in the New Testament, Paul breaks down how to love your husband and how to love your wife like this. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, what's the word? Respect your husbands. There's something about the fall Um, that in the very fallen nature of femininity is a desire to consume and to control, to nag and to nitpick, right? Some of you have it worse than others. Some of you had an amazing parents that kind of like got it out of you at a young age. Some of you didn't and you're just giving into it full swing, right? Uh, Here's one way to make a man feel unloved. Take over, control him, talk down to him. Like any dude in the room, if he had an honest bone in his body would say, yep, pretty much this is one way to have a terrible marriage, right? But it's interesting because not only does God curse her primary responsibility in the home, but he also curses her ability to respect him and to honor who God has made him in the position he has in her life. And so we see this right away, and now we could belabor this for days, but here's the challenge. As a woman, you have to understand that there are going to be propensities in you because of sin. And don't worry, we're not going to let the guys off the hook, right? But we have to be able to look at scripture and let it diagnose us on its own terms. And a lot of you are married to guys that sometimes you feel like, I'm not really interested in respecting him because he's not that awesome. And yet a man will never rise higher than the lowest standard you have for him. And so there's something about how a woman sees and views and treats a man that is absolutely transformative to his personal growth, to his character, and to his walk with the Lord. Now let's look at the man. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And here's what you're going to watch for the rest of this. Um, Adam, um, whose primary responsibility because of the nature of his physicality is going to have to labor and work in the ground, 
and God is going to make what was supposed to be delightful and, and, and enjoyable and was supposed to serve him. Now he is going to have to get the ground to work for him and it's going to be excruciating and it's going to be difficult. It says, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. His primary responsibility is broken. And this is why work is so stinking challenging for anybody in this room. Uh, this is why it is not always easy. Very few people that I get to talk to say, I love my job, it's never hard, it's a complete delight 24 seven. There's something about work that is a pain on some level. It's also interesting, just a little insight for you on this. Um, if a, by and large, this is, anecdotal, but I think consistent with the text here. Um, if a woman is going to find uh, or prioritize any relationship above her husband, what relationship is that going to be? Her children? And if a husband is going to prioritize any relationship over his wife, what's it going to be? His work. It's interesting because our fundamental relationship with our fundamental priorities are broken. And now what happens, we saw earlier in the verse that what happens is the woman is going to try to, we'll say, take over, conquer, control her husband. The husband's sinful response will be domination. That physically, the two, by and large, in most marriages and families can't compete because God has created them and designed them very differently. And so what you see um, throughout history is this, the curse in men as men have dominated and oppressed and broken so many women. And in the church, this is not how it's supposed to be. In, in the church, we recognize our tendencies as broken men, and we go out of our way to do something very, very different. In fact, our, our command to wives is to love them. But let me break down how Paul defines love. Obviously, it's sacrificial, but he gives two words in Ephesians 5 that husbands, if you're going to love your wives well, you've got to figure out these two words, nourishing and cherishing that what the heart of a woman wants, wants is to be cherished and then to be nurtured and to be nourished and to be built up that way. And what the heart of a man wants is to be respected. And the men don't understand why the women want these things. The women don't understand why the men want these things. But here's the deal. This is not a marriage conference. This is insight into what God is doing and why so many marriages are so stinking difficult and why we sit in marriage counseling and it's almost always the same issue. And then she blames him and then he blames someone else. It's like, really? Really? Did you not read Genesis chapter 3? Because everything you're dealing with is right, is right there. Uh, I'll just give you this little one-liner that I really appreciated. Healthy marriages own the curse personally. My marriage is not simply terrible because they are bad. Uh, my marriage is likely struggling because the curse is in me. The only person you can control in your marriage and in your life and in your work is who? You. And you own it. You fight the curse collectively. You come together, not against each other. This is just a little, little secret that most couples in marriage counseling, if they could understand this, would be revolutionary. And they overcome the curse powerfully, not because you are inherently strong, but because when you trust in Jesus Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit, who is your teacher, who is your helper, who is your encourager, who is your convictor, who reveals truth to you, who puts the mirror of God's word up to you and shows you for good and for not so good, 
who you really are, gives you a vision of who he wants to transform you into Jesus Christ, and then holds your hand and helps you become that person. And this is what the Christian marriage does. We own it personally, we fight it together, and then we powerfully, by the Holy Spirit, we overcome the curse. Now, FYI, this is a lifelong fight. The older you get, the harder you fight, the easier it gets. But the curse is in you till the day you die to one degree or another. Now, here's the big question. And I think when, when most people hear about all of this, um, here, here's probably what most people would say to me in one way or another. Michael, isn't this an extreme curse for such a tiny sin? Isn't this an overreaction? Any of you, any of you ever feel like that? Think about World War II. How many people roughly died in World War II? Estimates of over 100 million people. You go back to World, I, World War I, tens of millions of people. You just go back to wars and slaughter and all of the insanity, let alone our personal lives, which feel like they're in shambles, and we root all of it back to this moment. And on one level, you're like, God, um, this feels extreme. On the other hand, um, we, we look at this like she just ate an apple. And behind this is blatant, disastrous, stupidity, faithlessness, rebellion, selfishness, I want you to just quantify this. Did, did she know that death would be the result? Yes. Had she ever experienced death before? Probably not, but did she have enough knowledge to know the disastrous implications? The answer, of course, is yes. She chose a piece of fruit over the life of her children and her husband and herself. Do you, do you see the irrationality and the stupidity of her decision? Like this isn't just a little thing. She knew and understood the effects were going to be disastrous. First uh, Samuel 15, 23, it's a powerful statement. The Lord says, rebellion is as the sin of divination. And God's people at this time were frustrated because God was overreacting in his punishment. And he's like, look, I think we need to like re, we need to re, we need to help you like rethink what rebellion is to God because you don't think it's a big deal. But just because you don't think it's a big deal doesn't mean God doesn't think it's a big deal. And, and he says this, and presumption is iniquity and idolatry. That somehow in God's mind, that divination, witchcraft, it is as aggravating to him as rebellion. So I, I want to play a little game. And, and you don't have to say anything out loud, but just kind of fill in the blank with what word you think should go in this blank. Romans chapter 1, 29. Talking about the result of sin in the world and what sin does to the human heart. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, er, er, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, blank, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. What should go in the blank? In my brain, like serial murderers, <laughs> right? Um, I, I'm thinking of like a whole bunch of like really extreme, extreme things. So whatever this is, can we just agree that whatever's gonna go in there, the Lord feels very strongly about. Whatever's gonna be in this blank, right, is gonna be very intense to him. 
And our job as believers is to somehow feel the level of intensity that God feels about whatever this thing is, okay? Here's what it is. Disobedient to parents. So we live in a culture that says rebellion, disobedience, disrespect, everyone does it, it's just there, it's not that big of a deal, right? Seriously, we're numb. It's too much work to get them to be obedient, to be respectful, etc. What's really interesting is that God takes this issue of the discipline of children and says, it is one of the signs of evil of a generation. And so Christian parents, right, we are guilty. Anybody else guilty of not taking disobedience to parents too seriously? Like, um, gosh, this morning, uh, he's five, so I guess I can tell the story. Um, We're watching somebody else's dog, and there's this large pile of liquid on the floor. All of my kids are standing around it like it's no big deal, right? And and they're like walking over it, and I walk into the kitchen, and I'm like, I'm I'm sorry, um, do you guys know what this pile of liquid is? Now, if you have a dog and there's a pile of liquid on the ground, it's almost always, who said it? How many, how many of you ever thought you would shout pee in the middle of church, right? Yeah? <laughs> Just wanted to get you to do that. So I, I look at my kids and I'm like, did, did any of you get water? Because it's, it's right by the, the refrigerator. And I'm thinking, okay, um, like, no, 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 no. They all say no. And so I go get a paper towel and I put the paper towel on it, expecting it to be um, bright yellow. By the way, I can't smell urine for anything. So like, I'll, I can only know it's urine by the color. And I pull it up and it's, it's clear. And now I'm like, I got a liar on my hand, okay? Because my wife's sleeping. I didn't, I didn't do it. And I got three kids all hovering around it like it's no big deal. I go to one, I'm like, okay, it's truth time. Did you get water and spill it all over the ground? No, no, no. And here's what I said. I'm going to put all my cards on the table. No one's in trouble. I just need to know who did it. And my five-year-old goes, I did it. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, right? Really? Like, you're all just hopping around the water. Nobody, you know, and in this moment, like, I'm actually thinking about this sermon. And I'm like, I got to go, number one. I got to be at church. Number two, I don't have time to deal with this liar, right? And, uh, and then I'm thinking, but this is a really big deal, right? But I already declared nobody will be in trouble. So now I have to like declare there will be no judgment to get truth in this home. Are you kidding me? And uh, now if you see my son, don't bring that up to him, by the way, just let that one go. But, um, but it is interesting because I find myself numb to this reality and, uh, and yet somehow to God, it's a big deal. This is an example. It's an illustration that sometimes the value that God puts on things, they're not a big deal to us. When we talk about men dominating and not, not nourishing and cherishing their wives, that is a huge deal to God. We talk about wives um, controlling and not respecting their husbands, huge deal to God. When we talk about kids disrespecting their parents, it's just a really, really big deal to God. And when you read the Bible, you realize, I am way more of a product of my culture than I would ever like to admit that I don't feel sin, I, I categorize sins that aren't a big deal, if you could say that, as sins that are catastrophic and vice versa. It's really actually a frustrating thing and, and here's what we find, that we tend to be more numb than we ever wanna be. And if the curse is gonna be reversed in us, we have to start calling sin for what it is and understanding that how God feels about certain kinds of things. Now. Uh, I want to go in a different direction with the second point here in your notes. It's the grace of our Father. If we just ended here, uh, life would be pretty disastrous. But God is really, really good. And all throughout this text, he is vindicated as just, 
merciful, forgiving, gracious, compassionate, honest, trustworthy. And uh, what I want to do in the, in the last section of Genesis 3 is that I just want to show you maybe a snapshot of God's heart in all of this. Because there is a really strong temptation for us to accuse God. Why, God, did you walk away? God, if I were you, I wouldn't have done that. God, why did you let Satan in the garden? God, if I were you, I wouldn't have done that. God, why did you give them such a harsh curse? God, if I were you, I wouldn't have done that. Do you see how it goes? And yet, all throughout Scripture, no one can accuse God because everything God does is right and holy and flawless and perfect. And so when we get to heaven and we wag our accusing finger, which by the way, you won't do when you get there, but if you did, if you took that wagging finger up to heaven and you saw reality from his perspective, you would again declare him to be a genius. So here's what I wanna ask you to do as we go through this last section of Genesis 3. Uh, I want you to think back over your life to one major regret. I want you to take that. It's the thing that if you could like rewind and undo this thing, if you could go back and, and stop it from happening, if future you could have a conversation with former you and say, please, please, please don't do this. Now here, here's the catch. Uh, it has to be some sort of sin. Something that you did that was wrong. Uh, something that uh, probably has stuck with you for a little bit longer than you want. We got in your brain, hold it there. And what I want to do is I want to show you um, five things that God wants to do with that. So if you're a believer, this would be five things that God has done with that. If you're not a believer, these are five things God offers you through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Number one, God immediately promises to destroy your enemy. Um, one of the things that God wants to make a promise to you is whatever this thing is, whatever this tempter is, whether it's in you or outside of you, I want to make it known to you that I will once and for all eradicate the catalyst to this event. Here's what he says in verse 15. I will, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, I think better said, crush your head resulting in death, but all you'll be able to do is bruise his heel. Uh, one of the first things that Adam and Eve get to hear is that the catalyst for this catastrophe, God makes a promise to deal with with finality. That God is like, look, I mean, they're listening. They're hearing all of this. And in defense and in vengeance and in a protective heart for his children, he makes it clear to everybody, I will take care of this and there will come a day where I will finish him and he will have no more effect on your life. Amen. Number two, God lovingly covers their shame. I can't tell you how many people walk into church guilty. Like they walk into church almost feeling like there's like everybody knows what they've done. And we're like, we actually don't know what you've done. And honestly, that's not the most important thing about you, so just come in. But there's like this shame that some people bring with them when they're newer to church. They have this expectation that we're really, really judgy and condemning. And really, that's not the heart of Village Church that I sense at all in any way. And, um, and so what happens, though, is people carry their shame 
in their minds and their hearts and their bodies and their vocabulary. There's this continual sense of self-deprecation, maybe not out loud, but in, in their head. And here's what the Lord does. He lovingly covers them. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. And he covers their shame so that it does not define them. So it doesn't have to be a constant distraction so that when you see them, their shame is not the most important part of them. And what I find is if you're in this room and you're not a believer in Jesus, I am looking at some of the worst people I know. No offense, right? You have done some pretty terrible things and you're looking at some dude who has done some pretty atrocious, dumb things. And yet it does not define us in this place because God has covered our shame. He has not hid it away and, and like, like, you know, you sweep dirt under the rug. It's not like that. No, we've looked at it. We've owned it. We've called it what it is, but it no longer defines us so that when we walk into this room, I am not my stupidity. I am not all of the things that I have done wrong. I am not every one of my failures. This is one of the hardest things for people who don't have a relationship with a healthy church to get, that you are not defined by your sin here. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, we believe your sin has been covered. There may be some fallout of your sin. There may be some negative effects in your life, right? That's obvious. But when you walk into these doors, you are not first and foremost identified by your sin or your failure. In fact, what we find here is the first, it seems, death of animal death recorded. And right away, we learn um, an amazing principle in scripture called propitiation. Big word, but get to know it if you're gonna read the New Testament well. It's basically something that appeases anger. And God is legitimately angry at their sin. And he should be. Look what it did to us. Would you, would you not expect God to be very angry about what happened? And, and yet, here's what God does. He lovingly um, sacrifices an animal in that moment, covers their shame, and he is propitiated. He is appeased. His anger is postponed, if you will so that God does not need to pour out the fullness of his wrath on them. Which brings us to the third point. God graciously shows them the means of forgiveness. So there, as Americans, like, we're one of, like Western culture is one of the few cultures in history who has taken out this concept from our cultural heart language. This is why Americans have such a hard time, by the way, Understanding the concept that Jesus died for your sins. Substitutionary blood sacrifice is very, very foreign to Western Americans, um, which is why we have to figure out vocabulary that will help people who don't grow up in the church understand atonement language or blood sacrifice language. It's very weird for most people. But it doesn't change this fact. Whether or not Americans understand it, there is a law of our universe that goes like this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is a divine rule that applies across the universe in time, space, and history. It does not matter what culture you plop into. If they don't have cultural categories for blood, atonement, or sacrifice, it doesn't change or negate the divine economy requires blood for sin. You see that? Forgiveness requires blood. You get down to Genesis 1 and you see Here's my surmising. I'm not going to go to the grave on this one. I bet it was a lamb because God is a genius at foreshadowing. foreshadowing. 
You get to Genesis chapter four in Cain and Abel and you get the shed blood of a lamb who covers Cain's sin or Abel's sin. You get to Egypt, you have a, a, a shed a lamb who covers an entire family and a house right before Passover. You get to ultimately the Passover that the Jews celebrate in Israel and out of the tabernacle and one somehow shed blood of a lamb covers even a nation and then finally you ultimately get to Jesus Christ who the shed blood of one lamb finally covers the sins of the whole world. And that this is a constant theme that if somehow propitiation or God's anger is gonna be appeased and there's gonna be rightness made of your sin, it requires blood. It requires blood. And one of the most unfortunate realities is that the blood of bulls and goats and animals will never ever take away sins. It's just not how it works. They were foreshadows. Um, the substance of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, his blood was effective and powerful enough to cover the sins of the world. But God graciously shows them forgiveness happens through the shedding of blood. There's a cost to your sin and the cost is bloodshed. We've shared this with you many times at Village. Someone will pay the price for every one of your sins. And in God's divine economy, there are two options. Either you will pay the price or Jesus will. I don't know about you. I'm gonna give it to Jesus any day. I'd rather him do it. Number four, God mercifully prevents eternal damnation. He could have just let them go, eat the tree of life, and be eternally damned. But here's what happens. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. The problem is that man did not have the spiritual, emotional, psychological, or physical capacity to bear the weight of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken." God mercifully removes them from the possibility of eternal damnation. And he allows, the, this is amazing, a sin that should have condemned them to hell and to death immediately. God appeases his anger, gives them a longer life, shows them the sacrifice, and prevents them from eternal damnation. And finally, we get to number five. God justly prevents them from imminent destruction. He drives them out of his very presence. Fallen, sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God unless they be consumed by his glory and his holiness and destroyed. He casts them out of his presence. He says he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This verse tells us actually a couple really significant things. Number one, um, you know nothing if you're the reader of this for the first time about the spiritual realm or a spiritual war. And right away, God is not just declaring war on Satan, but revealing to the readers there are deep dimensions to the spiritual realm. And this is bigger than just a serpent. This is a spiritual battle that is ensuing. Satan may be, Satan may be crafty, but God has an army of his own, does he not? And it's more powerful than you can imagine. But number two, Sinful man cannot see God and live. Moses wanted to see God, remember that? And God's like, oh, I'll show you my back and give you like a piece of my shadow. Like that's the best you can get. And the result of that is he's glowing because the glory of God is so powerful, it almost completely crushes him. But I want you to see this. I want you to see that the relationship between Adam 
and Eve and God, it is broken. And if you are Adam and Eve, does this feel permanent? Absolutely. You are cast out for, for the rest of your days from the presence of your father, of your creator. You are completely cut off. And you gotta be wondering at this, at this point, if you're Adam and Eve, how can this ever be made right? So I wanna come back to your sin. Remember that sin you talked about, what God wants to do with that? I wanna just come back to that. What does God want to do with your shame, with your sin? Through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus wants to cover your shame with blood, remove it by blood, and redeem it by blood. It doesn't have to make sense to you. It's a divine law, it's a divine rule. Blood is the means by which your sin is covered, removed, and redeemed. And Jesus Christ shed his blood for you so that when you wake up in the morning, your sin is no longer defining you, it is covered. And it's not just covered, it is removed, and it's not just removed, it is redeemed. What does God want to do with my broken relationship with him? Romans 5.10 says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by what? The death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What does God want to do with my broken relationship? He makes peace by blood. He brings reconciliation Unity to God and I by my good works? Not at all, by blood. And secures my salvation by blood. My blood? No. The shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. See the difference? Most people want to shed their own blood or do their own good works to try to reconcile themselves back to God and that is not the means by which we are reconciled back to God. So what happens to Satan 4,000 years later? Is that a long time? God is patient. All I have to say is I would have been like, all right, look, you're having a son. His name's Jesus Eve, and he's going to destroy Satan. He literally waits 4,000 years and watches Satan scramble and try to figure it out and do all these stupid things and raise up snake gods all over the world. Here's what Colossians 2.15 says. He disarmed the rulers. These are talking about spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. I love this. On the cross, Satan thinks he has some kind of edge and ultimately through the shed blood of Jesus, God puts him down, covers our shame, gives us the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation and peace and salvation. And here's what he says to every one of us. It's through faith, it's not by works. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. And so Ville Church, you're gonna live with the reality of the curse all of your life. You're gonna be tempted to be defined by your shame and I think what God does for Adam and Eve, he's offering to you through faith in Jesus and those of you who have been forgiven, those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ, you don't walk around with your shame defining you because what now defines you? The shed blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf and that's it.